Warning, this show may contain adult language that is not suitable for all audiences. This is the TSN MMA Show with Aaron Bronstetter and Bazooka Joe Valtellini. Mixed martial arts enthusiasts, welcome to another edition of the TSN MMA Show. I'm your host, Aaron Bronstetter, and we have a lot to get to today. We've got a UFC Fight Night card headlined by Mackenzie Dern and Yan Xiaonan. We have a Bellator card headlined by Patricio Pitbull against Adam Borix. A lot to get to in the world of mixed martial arts, and we've got some interviews to get to as well. Mackenzie Dern will join us. Brandon Allen will join us, and Canadian Jesse Ronson, the lone Canadian on this weekend's card, will join us as well. Excited to talk to my guests and excited to talk to you. But before we get into this weekend's upcoming cards, you may have seen a story that uh, I put out on Friday regarding USADA and the fact that Conor McGregor is the lone fighter on the active roster that has not been tested by USADA in 2022 with the exception of a handful of fighters signed after August 1st. And the reason why that's significant is because they've only done a handful of uh, rounds of testing or whatever since then the database was last updated on September the 22nd. And the only exception outside of that is a a guy named Ricky Legere Jr. who was on the Ultimate Fighter 16, has never fought in the UFC, has never been tested by USADA. I don't even know why he's considered to be on the active roster, but just wanted to show that of course, when I cross-reference this, that there was one weird anomaly, so I have to point that out. But outside of that weird anomaly and, of course, newer signees to the roster, Conor McGregor is the lone fighter that has not been tested by USADA in 2022 and was also not tested in Q4 of 2021. But I need to clarify something here, and I want to just make this very, very clear. This is not a witch hunt for Conor McGregor. I don't know if he's using, I don't care if he's using, none of that matters to me. Because that's USADA's job, is to determine whether or not an athlete is using performance-enhancing drugs or drugs that are against the, I guess, banned substances, so to speak, under USADA's umbrella. It's not for me to worry about. I'm not worried about what Conor McGregor is or isn't doing. This isn't the Conor McGregor story. This is a story about a lack of transparency with the United States Anti-Doping Agency and the UFC because there should be an easy answer to this. One fighter, and not just any fighter, the biggest fighter in the sport is not getting tested. So why? That's the big, that's the question that I have and that's the question that I asked three entities. McGregor's team, the UFC, and USADA. Of those three entities, only USADA came back with a response. The others gave me a no comment. We're not commenting on this. So why is there a shroud of secrecy around this? And, of course, I'm not the first person to notice that Conor McGregor was not tested. But last week, I put together a list, well, with the help of uh, UFC Roster Watch. I'd like to give the, uh, whoever is behind UFC Roster Watch a, a thank you, because they sent me uh, the, the roster so that I could do this kind of cross-checking. And I went athlete by athlete and cross-referenced it with USADA's Athlete Test History Database, which is public information. So a lot of people said, oh, this isn't breaking news. We all knew that Connor wasn't being tested. The part that's newsworthy is that he's the only one. Nobody went person by person on the roster and said, oh, wow, he's the only person that USADA's not testing. Because if it was McGregor and three or four or five other athletes, it's not as big of a story. It's hardly a big deal. Because you could say, well, we're not 
testing everybody regularly. So, uh, you know, a couple will fall through the cracks here there. You could, you could maybe speculate that was the case, even though, of course, his name being on this list would, would make it somewhat, again, of an anomaly because he's the biggest star in the sport. So the question that I have here is, why is this being covered by a shroud of secrecy? USADA came back and said, once UFC athletes, this is the statement that they gave me, once UFC athletes are enrolled in the testing program, they are subject to testing even when not competing. Unless they notify the UFC of their retirement, their contract is tournament, or they are, other, sorry, contract is terminated, and this is the part that got me, or they are otherwise removed from the program. So when USADA sent me this statement, and I can pull this up, because I was very confused by this, I said... To them, are you able to clarify what this means, or they are otherwise removed from the program? And Usada got back to me and said, "I'll, you know, I'll get you an answer." And they said, "I got some clarity. That language about other removals is built into the policy to cover any unforeseen circumstances." And so I said, "Okay." My response to them was, "And what would be considered an unforeseen circumstances? That's pretty vague wording. It's also not found in the official anti-doping policy." Because I cite the anti-doping policy in my article. And the spokesperson for USADA said, I don't have any examples to cite, so I just point you back to the rules and definitions on that front. Well, the rules and definitions on that front cite two specific things, which is if your contract is terminated or you're retired. So the question is, did McGregor's team give written notice to the UFC saying that he is retired? so that he would be exempt from testing. And if they did that, I'm okay with it, because they're within the parameters of the regulations. So if any athlete does this, if any athlete gets injured badly, and for whatever reason they want to use means that would help them heal faster, if they write to the UFC, we are retired, we are handing in our notice of retirement, they would be removed from the program and could do whatever they want until they decide to re-enroll, in which case they have six months before they're permitted to compete, unless the UFC grants an exemption to the six-month written uh, written notice rule in exceptional circumstances, or where the strict application of that rule would be manifestly unfair to the athlete, which they did with Brock Lesnar. But I digress. If an athlete wanted to do that, that's fine. But whenever an athlete has opted for retirement with the UFC, they're removed from the rankings. They're removed from the active roster page. McGregor exists on both of those things. So, what is it? Is he retired? Is he not retired? Is he active? Is he not active? These are the important things that need to come to fruition in order for us to understand why he's not being tested. And again, the problem is there's no answer. Everybody's had an opportunity to explain why this rare anomaly exists where one fighter, notably the biggest fighter in the sport, is not being tested by USADA. So again, I reiterate, whatever McGregor does, that's fine. I have no issue with anything that he is doing because it's not my place. I'm not the one testing him. I'm not the one in charge of USADA. I'm not the one who is looking after who, how they decide who gets tested. But optically, this looks horrible. Optically. Because he's not being tested. He's still ranked. He's still on the active roster. And nobody's giving any sort of clarification for why this is the case. It should have an easy answer. 
All you have to say is, hey, we, we gave written notice that he's retired. For now, he is currently retired from the sport. And when he decides to return to the sport, he'll be in the pool for six months. He'll have two, two negative, at least two negative samples before returning to competition. And then he can continue his career. And that is a, that's an explanation that I would be okay with. I'm sure people would read into it, and that's fine. You can read into it what you will. You know, this world allows us to have opinions on whatever we'd like or to speculate and all that. But there's no speculation here on my part. I'm not speculating. I'm just providing the responses that I got in regards to a simple question. Why has he not been tested? And why is he still ranked? And why is he still on the roster if he's not being tested? And until I get one answer that will explain this to me, that's what makes this a big story. And a story that, for whatever reason, not a lot of people are touching on. I'll give credit to my colleague James Lynch, who recorded a video about it, to the folks over at Sirius XM Radio, Ryan McKinnell and Dean Thomas. I heard them talking about it. I heard Brendan Schaub talking about it. Didn't give me credit, but I heard him talking about it. But a lot of the bigger outlets out there are radio silent for whatever reason, and I don't know. I don't know why. They're worried about robbing people the wrong way. You know, listen, people always point to me and say I'm, I'm part of partner media. And that's true. But listen, there's got to be a, a separation between church and state sometimes. You know, when there's a story like this, and you go, and you look at it, and you say, oh, this is weird. It's my job as a journalist to cover it, to, to get to the bottom of what's going on here. These are the stories in MMA that pique my interest. Who's fighting who is great. You know, those are stories that everybody can publish. Who's been suspended by USADA? That's a press release is put out. Who's out of the fight on Saturday? The UFC will put out a press release or a manager will get in contact with someone in the media. All that stuff, these are stories that are, you know, they're easy stories. It's the tough stories that are what make a journalist a journalist. When you're able to go and you're able to dig, you're able to find something that is odd and you're able to question it and look into it and try to uncover an answer. And again, an answer should be the easy thing to do here. Just give me the reason. USADA is not providing a reason because they can't. I don't think they, they are able to provide. They, they write specifically, we do not comment on the testing pool status of any particular athlete. The big problem I have is that the reason the UFC brought on USADA was for transparency and for fighter safety and to keep the sport clean. But there shouldn't be exceptions. Anytime that something like this happens, it makes the program look bad. It makes the promotion look bad. Because if you don't have an answer for a, a very simple question, why is one person not getting tested? Then what are people supposed to think? What conclusions are you supposed to draw from that if you're sitting back and you're looking at the evidence in front of you? The evidence in front of you is one fighter is not getting tested. Nobody's explaining why. Nobody has an answer. It just looks suspicious. It's, again, from an optic standpoint, it does not look good. And I'm here to point fingers at any athlete. It's not my job to police anti-doping. It's USADA's job. And if he's still in the pool, if he is still registered in the testing pool, they're not doing their job. It's an abdication of duty. If he's not in the testing pool, then they are doing their job. They're not testing him. But, but nobody's explaining why he's not in the pool. And why he still remains on the active roster website. And why he's still a ranked fighter. And a lot of people say, you know, I wrote active fighter. 
what an active fighter means is that they are actively on the act they're on the active roster. John Hathaway is not an is is on the active roster. He's been tested by USADA this year and he's been out of the game for eight years. Although recently I suggest you read a story from Nolan King about his return. He's fighting in a promotion called Octagon and is basically remaining under UFC contract given a bit of an exception to compete once so that the UFC can see what he's got. Which you don't see very often, which is a cool story in its own right. He's still being tested. Travis Brown, who I think a lot of people believe is long retired from the sport, continues to get tested. He's still enrolled in the program. Sheldon Westcott hasn't fought in five years. He's still in the program. He's still getting tested. So that's what an active fighter is. An active fighter is someone who's on the active roster. They're active with, you, with the UFC, considered to be an active fighter. doesn't mean that they have a lot of activity in fighting. McGregor last fought in July of 2021. So, has he been inactive since then? Yes, yeah, sure. He's still an active person on the active roster. Like Cyril Gaon recently fought. He's, he's not active right now. <laughs> he's not fighting. not scheduled to fight. The same deal. McGregor's healing from an injury. A pretty catastrophic injury. But so is Chris Weidman, and he's being tested. People say, oh, well, he's on his yacht, or he's in Ireland, and, you know, is Usada going to go out to him? He's got to use the whereabouts app at all times. Otherwise, he's going to get suspended. Or he's going to get a public warning. That's, that hasn't happened either. And they're still going to South Korea to test Duho Choi, who hasn't fought in three years. And who hasn't left South Korea, uh, or at least has left Asia. I saw that he was, uh, I think he was in China. I saw on his Instagram page. But he hasn't, I don't think he's been to North America. So they still have, this is a worldwide anti-doping pro, uh, pro, uh, program. So his location is irrelevant. All I'm saying is there should be a simple explanation here and none were given. And that's why this is a big story that more people should be talking about, frankly, because it's one fighter out of the entire active roster in 2022. Again, save for a handful of newer fighters and Ricky Legere Jr., who, if you can find out why he's on the roster, I mean, your guess is as good as mine. So that's all I'd like to say about that particular story, because... I think a lot of people believe that it's some sort of witch hunt. It's not not so. It's simply accountability on the part of USADA and the UFC because they're not giving me an answer either. If we really want to believe that this is a fair sport, that, this is, that there is a level playing field here, these sort of exceptions need to be explained. All right, let's move on to UFC Fight Night. This coming weekend, there was no UFC event this past weekend. Uh, Bellator had a very successful event in Dublin, which saw Yoel Romero uh, score a knockout win in the third round over Melvin Manhoff. And in the main event, Benson Henderson looking great. Five-round decision over Peter Queeley. The fans in Ireland are awesome. I mean, that they should just keep going to Ireland. I, I've heard a lot of people in the media say that. Just make Ireland your home base. I mean, I'm sure they can do so successfully. It's very popular there. But we'll move on to uh, UFC Fight Night. It's at the Apex. Nearly a year removed from her last main event, also at the Apex, against Marina Rodriguez. Mackenzie Dern back in action for a five-round main event fight against Yan Xiaonan. And there are... Uh, apparently the Apex is going to be closed to media and fans. 
And it hasn't been disclosed yet, but the rumor is that Mark Zuckerberg has rented it out for basically a private event. Feels kind of like the Gladiators, but I digress. Mackenzie Dern's a minus 245 favorite against Yan Xiaonan, who's plus 186, according to our friends at FanDuel. This line is way off to me. Way off. I think this should be closer to an even money fight, and even if it was, I'd be siding with Yan Xiaonan. This fight is so similar to the fight that Dern had with Marina Rodriguez in terms of stylistic matchup last year. If you look at the odds of that matchup, Dern was a similar size favorite. She was minus 188. She closed at minus 220 in some spots. Right now, minus 245. And to me, I think Yan Xiaonan, unless Mackenzie Dern really implements a grappling-heavy game plan, which has not been successful for her, if you look at her her stats, I'll pull them up now, in terms of takedowns landed, her takedown accuracy is 9%. 9%. And Yan Xiaonan's takedown defense is 65%. Which is not the highest, but it's also certainly not on the low end, especially considering how many takedowns have been tried against her, have been attempted against her. Yan Xiaonan's two most recent losses to the champion Carla Esparza back in May of 2021, and then in March of 2022, a very closely contested bout against Marina Rodriguez, which I think a lot of people thought should have gone Xiaonan's way. I was not of that opinion. I thought it should have gone to Rodriguez, but... If you would have argued that it's Jan, should have won that. I mean, I'm not going to argue with you. That's a close, close fight. Prior to that, undefeated in the UFC, 6-0. and And if you look at this stylistically, this is a very similar kind of stylistic matchup that Dern had against Rodriguez. Lengthy, striker, good at keeping range, quick in and out. And to me... Dern's going to need to find a sub here, because if she doesn't find a sub, I think Yan Xiaonan's going to win a decision here. Or perhaps even a late stoppage, although Dern uh, has never been stopped. So I would lean more towards a decision. But I'm surprised that the line is as wide as it is, personally. And I know when I make my TSN Edge recommended plays, I'm waiting for that Xiaonan decision line to come out, because that's one of my recommendations for sure. It'll probably be in the plus 245, plus 250 range, if I had to guess. Uh, I'll be all over that. Coming event, Randy Brown, minus 340. Francisco Trinaldo, Masaranduba, plus 250. You know, Trinaldo is not a guy you make a lot of money betting against because if you look at him historically, his losses come to Muslim Salikov. It's a unanimous decision. Alexander Hernandez, unanimous decision, close fight. James Vick, that's back in 2018, so we're talking nearly five years ago at this point. Kevin Lee, Chiesa. Lost to Piotr Hallman back in 2013 and Gleason Tebow back 10 years ago in 2012. Otherwise, it's just wins, wins, wins. This guy's got a really good record in the UFC. That being said, this is the toughest opponent he's fought since he beat Bobby Green in 2019. And Trinaldo is now 44 years old. So I can certainly see why the line is what it is here for Randy Brown to be a big favorite. Brown on a bit of a roll right now. Three straight wins over Chaos Williams, Jared Gooden, and Cowboy Oliveira. A loss to Vicente Luque before that. 
and prior to that, two wins over Barley Alves and Brian Barberena, respectively. So he's 5-1 and one in his last six over the last three years. He looks like he's really coming to his own as a fighter. And, uh, you know, based on the style that Ronaldo has, I think that Brown, if he can keep a good distance, is going to win this fight by picking him apart. We're talking about a uh, six-inch height advantage for Randy Brown here over Masaranduba. So I can see why the line is as wide as it is. I, I don't see a great path for Francisco Ronaldo. I mean, other than just being well-rounded and tough. I'm not sure he's going to be able to outstrike Brown. I think in terms of grappling, Ronaldo's um, a really good grappler, but you don't see him get top control all that often uh, anymore. He's gotten five takedowns in his last six fights. Still not bad. But... Uh, you know, as much as I hate to go against a guy like Trinaldo, who's just been so successful in the UFC, I think Brown is the size here at minus 340. Not a ton of value. If you can look for an angle, I think a Brown decision would be a decent angle to take. I don't think he's going to finish Trinaldo. When was the last time Trinaldo got finished in a fight? Take a look. The last time Francisco Trinaldo was finished in a fight was against Kevin Lee in 2017, so five plus years ago. Not an easy guy to finish, but... Randy Brown is extremely well-rounded and extremely creative, and that's a recipe for success. And not to mention his his length, his range. He just does it all. And it's been nice to see a guy off of uh, Dana White looking for a fight have such a successful career. Rowney Barcelos, minus 250. Trevin Jones, plus 190. I think Barcelos is actually undervalued here because of his last performance against Victor Henry. I think that Barcelos was around a minus 400 favorite in that spot. It might have even been higher. Take a look. So in his last fight, Barcelos, yeah, closed at like minus, as high as minus 600. Wasn't expected to lose that fight. So I think a lot of people have kind of overcorrected the steering wheel here because if I recall, was he not matched up against uh, Trevin Jones at some point prior to this? I can't remember. But either way, you know, personally, I think that Trevin Jones is a really you know, solid fighter. But uh, if Barcelos has anything left, I think at minus 250, that's actually a pretty decent price for a guy as talented as Rowney Barcelos. Coming off of a tough loss as well. Sadiq Yusuf is a minus 1,200 favorite against newcomer Don Shanus. They were, I believe, being negotiated to fight on the last card. But uh, I guess they couldn't get that together quick enough, so it got moved to this card. And Yusuf taking on a, a pretty unheralded newcomer and risking his ranking in doing so, but he's a minus 1,200 favorite. I can't say I'm too surprised at that number. I think it started, opened at around minus 500, minus, minus 600. I'd be interested to see what a Yusuf inside the uh, distance prop pays or a Yusuf by KO prop pays. I think you can find some value on some props, but those numbers aren't out just yet. At the time of this recording, I'm recording this Tuesday afternoon. If you're... Looking at it now, and you're like, what's this guy talking about? The, uh, the props are out. But, you know, this isn't a live show. We're not on radio here, folks. Unless you're listening in TSN Radio in Toronto or Ottawa. Thank you for listening. But, yes, the show is uh, pre-recorded if you're listening on radio. John Castaneda, minus 215. Willie Cat, Daniel Santos, plus 164. Don't have a strong read on this one. Number seems a bit wide, but I'd have to look into it a little bit further. Mike Davis, minus 200. Slava Borshev, plus 154. This one's interesting to me. 
Um, I think you might be able to get some value on Borshev here. Borshev coming off a loss. Mike Davis hasn't fought in some time, but Mike Davis is an extremely talented fighter who, while he hasn't fought in some time, does look really good when he does. His last win, I believe, was over Mason Jones. Borshev in his last fight against Diakizi was was wrestled and, and beaten that way. I think Davis will likely try to, you know, possibly keep us on the feet where he might have an advantage there too, right? So difficult to uh, to know exactly what the strategy will be. But, you know, Davis did take Mason Jones down three times, took Thomas Gifford down twice. So maybe he does implement a more wrestling-based game plan as the path of least resistance. Borshev taken down 11 times by Mark Diakizi. So you can see a pretty clear path for Mike Davis if Borshev hasn't tightened that up. I mean, he's training a team alpha male. He's probably getting wrestled all day. It's amazing to me that he got taken down 11 times. Literally TP minus 160, oh, sorry, minus 186. Alexei Olenek minus or plus 144. This is going to be one of those situations where I think Latifi is going to get on top and Olenek's going to try to submit him in as many possible ways as he can. And I think Latifi, Latifi's neck is hard to find. I don't know if, I don't, I doubt Latifi's ever been uh, submitted. I'm going to look that up. Because there's not much neck there to get. And, you know, with a Von Flu choke, I don't think that matters quite as much. Or an Ezekiel choke, rather. He has never lost by submission. So just from a matchup standpoint, I would have to lean a little Latifi here. Because I think that Olenek's best weapons are going to be taken away from him. I don't think he's going to want to get into a striking battle with a little Latifi. And I think Latifi's probably wants to take this down anyways. So I expect this to be a Latifi decision. And Olenek doesn't often go to a decision. When was the last time Olenek went to a decision? Oh, his last decision was against Spivak. So he's had two decisions in his last five, actually, so I should I should take that back. But for the most part, most of his fights end inside the distance. We'll see if this one does as well. Tabitha Ricci, minus 225. Jessica Panay, uh, plus 172. To me, you know, Tabitha Ricci has looked really good, but Jessica Panay is pretty sneaky. She's got a lot of skills. I think if this fight's on the feet, Panay will have something of an advantage. And even on the ground, I think Ricci is a, a better grappler, but Panay's got a lot of creativity and is very good in scrambles. This, to me, is a dog or pass situation, but uh, probably a pass for me overall. Uh, Joaquin Silva, minus 150. Jesse Ronson, plus 118. Ronson always in close fights. If you can find the split decision prop on this, that's where I would lean. I think this ends up being a very close fight. It could go either way. Christoph Jotko, minus 128. Brendan Allen, plus 100. Man, this is a tough one to call. This is a very tough fight. Because I think Brendan Allen, you know, has a lot of advantage in this fight. But Jotko is just so fundamentally sound and is so good at getting people to fight his kind of fight. So to see him as just a small favorite, it, uh, it's enticing. But man, this is a volatile fight that I would probably just end up staying away from. Even if you can find an Allen submission prop, I think it's going to be tough for him to find that kind of a situation against Jotko where he can capitalize. On the feet, though, I mean, Allen, I think, isn't going to be a fish out of water there. I mean, Allen, I think, can hang with Jotko on the feet, which is what makes this kind of an interesting fight to me. Maxime Grishin, minus 186. Felipe Linz, plus 144. I think that this is probably lined correctly. I think that Grishin is, you know, should be the favorite, but uh, this one is a total pass for me as well. Julia Stolyarenko, minus 118. Looked great in her last fight. Chelsea Chandler, newcomer, minus 108. I believe she's a newcomer. I don't think she's fought in the UFC before. 
And if she has, her fight was not eventful because I don't remember it. Yeah, this is her, this is her UFC debut. It's at a catchweight, actually, I believe, of, of uh, maybe 140 pounds. This is an interesting one to me. I, I don't know enough about Chelsea Chandler to make a confident pick on this one. And uh, to open the card, a great opener. Randy Costa, minus 320. Guido Canetti, plus 235. I will be taking Costa by first-round KO if there's a good prop for that, and it's like mm, plus 200 or more. That's the way that I'm going to go with this one. I think that's how this fight ends. Kennedy, very tough. But Costa, man, in the first round, this is one of the best first-round fighters that we have in the UFC right now, especially at 135 pounds. Definitely the, the best at 135 pounds in terms of first round, like the most dangerous guy in the first round. You saw him against Yanez, Adrian Yanez, and how, how dangerous he looked there before Yanez just forced Costa to run out of gas. And he took a lot of big shots from Costa. Looking at Costa's resume, I mean, guy's just a heavy hitter. But I don't think he's ever won a fight that's gone beyond the first round. I'm going to go and look that up. In the UFC, he hasn't. But I don't think... I think on the regional scene, all of his fights were first-round finishes. Let's take a quick look-see here. Yeah, so aside from an amateur fight, which he won a doctor stoppage in the se- at the end of the second round... Every fight that he's had that has gone beyond the first round, he has lost. And in his fights that have ended in the first round, he's 6-0. Beat Journey Newsom in 41 seconds. Beat Boston Salmon in 2 minutes and 15 seconds. And then on the regional scene, all four of his wins came within the first minute and a half of his fights. Guy knows how to slang. So, Randy Costa. I think he uh, he takes Kennedy out in the first round. Kennedy, on the older end, he's almost 43 years old, which is ancient for a bantamweight. But hey, he's coming off a win. Knocked out Chris Matinho in the first round, but prior to that, three straight losses, including getting finished by uh, Dana Batgare in the first round. And he also got finished, albeit via submission, from Kyung Ho Kong in the first round of their fight in 2018. So... Somebody who has been finished a couple times in the UFC. Not actually not sure. Yeah, he's lost one decision in the UFC. And prior to that, I think all of his wins were finishes. Got a really late start to his career. When did Kennedy? Kennedy debuted. I guess it was in 07, technically, so not that late. In 07, he would have been 28 years old. So. Still pretty old for a uh, debuting fighter. Then again, that's also back when MMA was kind of in its infancy in 2007. I think that's fair to say. Still pretty young sport at that point in time. So there's UFC Fight Night. Dern versus Jan. That's this Saturday from a close to the public UFC Apex. And we'll talk about that in some of our interviews a bit later on. Again, coming up on the show, we got Mackenzie Dern. She'll be joining us. We also have Brendan Allen. He'll be joining us. And Jesse Ronson will be joining us as well. So thank you for tuning in. And uh, hopefully you enjoy those interviews. Uh, before we get to those interviews, let's talk a little bit about Bellator. We have got Bellator 286 coming up. 
The UFC is almost, they were clo- close to catching up to Bellator in terms of events. I think next year they might do it. Maybe not, actually, because Bellator isn't like once a month. It's, I think it'll probably average more than once a month. So the, Bellator might just keep that, uh, that numbered event race going. UFC was catching up, though. You know, we're looking at a horse race, catching up. You've got Patricio Pitbull against Adam Borix in the main event. Surprised that the uh, early lines are as close as they are. I would favor Patricio here by a, a lot more than this. AJ McKee also on the card. Not against Patricio Pitbull for the third time. Instead taking on former UFC veteran Spike Carlisle in his, I believe this is his lightweight debut for Bellator. And then the fight that I am probably most looking forward to, Aaron Pico against Jeremy Kennedy. That's a great fight. Pico has looked great, but Jeremy Kennedy's the real deal. Jeremy Kennedy's not the kind of guy who's going to be able to, you know, one-punch KO Aaron Pico like a lot of these other guys have found a way to do. But his wrestling is really sound. Um, We'll see how he does on the feet against Pico, but uh, not a great stylistic matchup for Jeremy Kennedy, I'll say that. Just that he's a very tough fighter who seemingly keeps improving. He was devastated when the fight fell through the first time, so I think he's happy to get this one back. Juan Archuleta, minus 110. Enrique Barzola, minus 110. These uh, two were eliminated from the Bantamweight Grand Prix, and now they're facing one another, even money. That makes sense to me. I would probably lean Barzola in that fight, to be honest. Canadian Lance Gibson Jr. is taking on Dominic Clark. Canadian, a big favorite as usual. He's uh, looked very good in his uh, his career thus far. Looking forward to seeing him continue to build on that. And Vladimir Tokov is on the card. He's somebody who's been getting a lot of attention, as is his opponent, J.J. Wilson. That's a fun card on the. That's a fun fight on the uh, prelims. And Max Roshkoff is taking on Mike Hamill as well. Another solid fight. Second fight for Max Roshkoff, I believe, in uh, in Bellator since his UFC release. Much publicized UFC release. So that's what we've got coming up. I think that Bellator card is actually pretty solid. The last one in Dublin wasn't fantastic in terms of name value, but it sure did deliver. The fans really really had a good time. Trying to think if there's any other news. The PFL are not giving any layups to Marlon Moraes, who's coming out of retirement. Taking on Shane Burgos, apparently, in his debut. That's what they're looking to do for their uh, championship event at 145 pounds. I said that's a dope matchup online, and people were like, oh, it's a mismatch, blah, 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 yeah. In terms of the PFL and name value, this is a great fight. Hard to think of a, of a fight with more name value that the PFL could put together right now in the men's divisions. I'm looking forward to this one. Two action fighters. Let's see how it goes. I think people believe this is a layup for Shane Burgos. I don't believe that's the case at all. We see that Marais's chin has failed him, and, you know, recently, but... See how it goes. It's not right off Marlon Rice just yet. The Dana White Contender Series has wrapped up. Uh, sixth season now in the books. Only one fighter came back for a second time this season, and that was Bo Nickel. And whew, he cut through his opponent like a knife through butter. And this is, you know, people will say, oh, he was given some sort of, you know, some sort of scrub from the regionals. You know, Donovan Beard is the CFFC champion. Like, this isn't the guy who is, 
a, a you know a spoon-fed opponent. This is somebody whose last opponents have you know he's he's how many have we, has I guess he had only had one loss before that he was seven and one, and was the CFFC middleweight champion of the world had just beaten Miles Lee who was undefeated. This isn't somebody who just came you know they, they picked up off the streets like this is a good fighter. He's not not beating cans. He's only been active for you know as as a pro for under two years, you know mind you but. At the same time, guy coming off of a legitimate win at a, at a very strong promotion. If you look at CFFC and the champions that have come out of CFFC, they've all gone on to do good things for the most part. So to see Bo Nickel just run through him 52 seconds, uh, it's just remarkable. Uh, Bo Nickel in 2022 has fought uh, three times, and all of his wins have come in under, I guess, a minute, a minute and two seconds was his longest fight. So this guy's just running through people, and it's... Even last year when he fought amateur, just running through everybody. I'm eager to see what he can do in the UFC. And I said yesterday on social media, and I caught some flack for it, that aside from maybe three or four fighters in the middleweight division, I think Bo Nick will be a favorite, a betting favorite against all of them. And that's not to take away from any of them, and that's not to say that he would even win those fights. But based on the perception of how good this guy is, and you look at Hamza Shemaev in his first two fights, a win over John Phillips, whose only win was over in the UFC was over Alan Amadovsky, who never won a fight in the UFC. And Reese McKee, who's looked good in Cage Warriors, but he's a lightweight. He's a lightweight taking a short-notice fight at welterweight. Shemaev ran through those two guys with one combined UFC win. And that one win was against a fighter that never won in the UFC. And got beaten pretty badly, mind you. Alan Amadovsky, no disrespect. And Shemaev was a 5-1, to 6-1 to one favorite over Gerald Mearshart in his third fight. And Mearshart is the all-time leader in submissions in the middleweight division. He's a legit fighter. I think that Bo Nickel would be favored against nearly everybody in the division based on the perception of how good he is. Probably wouldn't be favored against Whitaker or Israel or Hamzat. Beyond that, and again, like I'm not trying to disrespect anybody, but you see just how good this guy is. And these lines are based on public perception. They're based on how people think you're going to perform. He might open as an underdog in some of those, but I think that he would get bet to a favorite in almost every one of those fights. Just looked tremendous. And the Contender Series looks like he's yielding some good talents. And once again, after that first episode where only one guy was signed, Joe Piper, who just got his first UFC win against the aforementioned Alan Amadovsky. It's the most they've ever signed. This was the third straight week where they signed five of the fighters Prior to that, it was four, and then the week before that, it was five. So they're just—they were on a signing spree, but all of them earned it. If you look at everybody that got a contract, you look at how they performed. The level is so high right now at the regional level. Like they're bringing in really, really good talent. And listen, people are honest about it. It's cheaper talent. If you've got 800 fighters or whatever, 700 fighters on the roster, I wouldn't be surprised if 200, 300 of them came off the contender series. Because they come in on entry-level contracts. But the UFC is the show. Everybody's tuning in for the UFC. Tuning in for the three letters. Not necessarily who's competing in the UFC. Obviously, you're going to have fighters that will be draws. But on a week-to-week basis, and you'll see how this Saturday's card performed, I won't be surprised if it's trending, even though it's Mackenzie Dern and Yan Xiaonan. So the Contender Series is done. Bo Nickel, eager to see what he does once he... Starts getting booked against UFC talent, but I think we're going to see more of the same from him. I think he's that good. 
you look at just how, how he this bastard Donovan Bearden and just how much he showed in under a minute yesterday from the striking acumen. You know, pinpoint accuracy, uses it, hits him hard, takes him down, mounts him, goes for the guillotine, transitions it into a triangle. Like, all that happens in 52 seconds, and he's just doing it so smoothly. And you saw the vignette from Donovan Bearder. This guy's never been hit. I haven't seen him get hit. He's going to get hit tonight. He didn't. This guy's the real deal, man. Bo Nickel. 26 years old. Turning 27 soon. He's like about to enter his prime in the next couple of years. I think this guy has championship potential. I don't think that I'm out of line saying it this early. And I would be surprised if people didn't agree with me. They say, yeah, this guy will never be a UFC champion. But they dismiss him at this stage. I think he'd be uh, wrong to do so. You look at the wrestling pedigree. You look at how well he's done. I think he's the real deal. One thing I missed that's really important to me. The World MMA Awards voting ends in, I believe, it's three or four days. If you have not yet voted, I implore you to do so. I am nominated for Journalist of the Year. If you vote for me, I would appreciate it. Up to you who you choose to vote for, but uh, if you like my work, certainly would appreciate your support. Would not hurt. Any support would not hurt. All right, that's about all I got for you right now. So let's get to our interviews. We've got Mackenzie Dern, who's headlining the fight card this weekend against Jan Shaunan. We have got Canadian Jesse Ronson will be joining us. Always nice to speak with Jesse. And finally, we will be joined by Brendan Allen, who will be taking on Christoph Jotko. He's a, he's a fun guy to talk to. I like Brendan Allen. Fun fighter to watch, fun fighter to talk to. Good combination. So let's get into those right now. This is the TSN MMA Show, and here's our interview with Mackenzie Dern. It's almost exactly one year removed from her first main event at the UFC Apex, and now it's her second one, just shy of one year uh, anniversary from the last one against Marina Rodriguez. Very similar stylistic matchup against Yan Xiaonan. Do you agree with that? Their their styles are very similar, I would say. Yeah, I mean, they're both strikers. You know, we both have a loss to Marina. So, I mean, I learned a lot from just watching Yan with Carlos Esparza with Marina, then re-watching my fight with Marina. Uh, but I do think that Marina, for sure, she moves a lot more. You know, I think Yan, she kind of engages more and she's more stays in the pocket in high volume. Uh, Marina kind of stays a little bit on the outside, so a lot more chasing for me, who's the grappler, you know? Um, so, yeah, we'll see. I think, I think Yan, for a grappler, has a good because she engages, but she's coming from two losses. So, I mean, I don't know if she'll change her strategy for this fine, you know, just for precaution, you know, to not get a third loss. Or if she does change her strategy, she'll be able to do that for five whole rounds because it is a main event, you know, so five... Five rounds, you know, if you're going to change your style, you know, it's it's hard to keep that for five, 25 minutes, you know, so we'll see. But I definitely think striking, high volume, power, um, this is going to be like, I, I I know that to get into the to the takedown, get into where I want to go, I'm going to have to go in that firing line and I'm not going to, I'm probably not going to get out with a clean face of this fight. <laughs> well, looking at your last three opponents, uh, you know, Nina Nunez, Marina, and of course, Tisha Torres. That's something you're kind of used to. Is you wait for for the snipers to engage, and you have no problem getting into the fire in order for them to play your game. And like you mentioned, they have to kind of not be themselves 
for the duration of the fight and over five rounds, that's going to be difficult for Jan. Do you think that you're not going to get the best version of her because of that? Because she has to be so careful with what she does that it will take her out of what she's accustomed to? Yeah, that's why this fight is so, um, you know, it's hard for me, not hard for me to prepare, but I'm so interested in like, man, I'm a little bit excited to see how she's going to come out, you know? I mean, is she going to be confident in her in her game? I always, I always thought that like, man, I think the strikers, if they're confident, you know, when they're striking, they should be putting the pressure on me because as a grappler, technically grapplers, we're not supposed to like getting hit in the face, you know what I mean? So I always thought that they would, the strikers would come out Overwhelm, try and overwhelm me and things like that but a lot of my fights I take like one step forward they take like 10 steps back you know they're always kind of like you said a little bit different than how they are with all their other fights you know so I mean I think we'll see we'll see how she comes out you know I'm, I'm really I'm really interested and curious to see how she's going to come with this fight you know I think that the two losses could persuade her a little bit you know try to do a different strategy especially with her loss against Carla Sparza that she took her down easily you know um and just kind of controlled on the ground so you know so I think that might affect I think she's gonna I think if I was her I'd probably be a little bit more on the precaution you know and then try and be on the counterattack and land on the on the counterattack you know but who knows who knows what, what will happen you know you look at the heavyweight division, Francis Ngannou. With him, all it takes is one big shot, so people have to be extremely careful. You're sort of the equivalent of that in the women's strawweight division, the lightest division, because if you slip up just once, you're able to find that opening and capitalize, whereas there, I don't think there are any other fighters in your division who can boast that. So when you have a fight like this, small cage, five rounds, is that the best circumstance for you in terms of going into a fight that you could have, rather than, you know, of course, five rounds, big cage, three rounds, small cage, this is sort of the ideal set of circumstances for you because you can find that opening and the opponents have less room to move. Yes, 100%. You know, I mean, of course, I wanted like a crowd, you know, when I was talking to Mick, I said, Mick, give me like a mini bit with the crowd. I, it's so good being back in front of the crowd. I had five fights in the Apex during the pandemic, you know. You know, it's definitely, it was experience, you know, but when I went, went back to fighting in Florida in front of the crowd, it's like, man, you really remember that feeling and how it's so good to be doing what we're doing and kind of just that show that we're putting on for people and that people enjoy watching us do what we're trained to do, you know? So I really wanted a crowd, but other than that, you know, besides the crowd, yeah, like you said, the perfect, the smaller cage, you know, um, I think the, 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 the type of, the matchup is really good. Um, and I mean, it's also good too. I mean, Yan she's from China. So, I mean, this is like a, a lot of views from China. I mean, Asia, it's like, it's always good to fight someone that has such a big following, especially like, you know, me from Brazil and the United States and her from China, Asia, you know, we have that whole background of views and followers. So this is going to be a great fight. Um, and yeah, 25 minutes, you know, so it's like, I think I have a good chin, you know, <laughs> I don't know if that's the best thing, you know, like, oh yeah, I'm durable. But I think I'm. I think I can handle 25 minutes. You know, I've been punched pretty hard. I've been my nose broken by T.J. Dillashaw. You know, before. So it's like, man, I've been hit pretty hard. So I think I can stay in there. And then just to have 25 minutes to be able to try and work and get the takedown. You know, I think. I think this is going to be. I see good, good result for me. You know, and uh, my last two fights with Marina and Tisha, I got in really good positions on the ground. You know, Omaplatas, Kimuras. I had the back. Uh, I had their backs in. I didn't get the finish, you know, that the, they were able to hold it off and the round started over again. And even though I feel like my my ground game is at another level, I really made sure like this was something I focused on this camp is like, hey, 
I'm the jiu-jitsu fighter here in the UFC, you know, I need to represent jiu-jitsu. So when I get to the ground, I need to be finishing, you know, I need to be finishing these fights. I can't be letting them like, okay, start over on the second, you know, go back to your feet. You know, when I get to the ground, I need to finish it. So that's that's what I've been training so much is just even being tight and being on point with my timing. And when I get the submission, when I get an opportunity to finish it. <laughs> I want you to expand on something there. You said durability is not always a good thing. Is that because you're prone to taking more punishment? Usually durability, <laughs> people will think that's a great trait because you can hang in a fight for as long as possible as opposed to getting stopped early. Uh, you know, elaborate on that for me. <laughs> No, yeah, I mean, it's good. It has pros and cons, you know, for sure. Being durable, especially as a grappler, you know, um, you know, we get hurt or something. And if you can stay in, I mean, the fight's not over until it's over, you know. So definitely if you're durable, you know, and I think it's kind of a little bit hard, you know, on the people when you see like, man, I'm punching, I'm punching and they just don't stop. You know, they just keep coming forward and you're like, I almost you can almost win just by heart and pushing forward and, you know, cardio and stuff like that. But I mean, when you think of career longevity you know and just trying to you know for me i felt like what made me get so much better in these last six months was the fact that i got out of my fight with tisha torres with no injury you know what i mean and of course i don't go into the fight thinking okay i don't want to get hurt you know i'm going into fight ready to kill or be killed you know so i'm going to do what i have to do if i need to break my nose if whatever happens you know with marina i had meniscus surgery with Vern, i broke my nose so i had another surgery on my nose so it's like man but the fact that I left the fight with Tish, no injury, and I got right back in the gym, and as I was able to go six months just training and getting better, that's what I felt pushed me to getting closer and closer to champion material, uh, championship level. So when you think of durability, it's good, but for who wants to be a champion and have a long career as a champion, um, yeah, and just, you know, be able to see things, and, you know, of course, when you have blood on your face and stuff like that, it makes it worse and worse and worse, so... Um, yeah, I, I'm glad I'm durable, but the goal is definitely not to be in there getting hit as much as possible. <laughs> I want to get hit as less as possible, get my win, get a bonus, and be back in getting those records. <laughs> you mentioned like uh, that you like fighting in front of crowds. There's kind of a shroud yeah. of secrecy around this event. Not only is it close to the public, it's also close to media. Uh, yeah. Do you have any idea what's going on here? Thankfully, it's not close to the camera operators. We actually get to watch this on television, but what have you heard about this event and why they're not allowing media or or the public to come and watch you guys fight? Yeah, from what I know, um, Mark Zuckerberg, he rented out the whole arena, so it's going to be a show for him. <laughs> it feels like the gladiators, you know, you've got like the uh, the, the rich guy <laughs> comes and the... takes over. Yeah, exactly. Is that, is that what it feels like to you? Does it have that kind of a vibe? <laughs> a little bit, a little bit. I mean, I know he's been training. I saw some material of him training um you know jujitsu and stuff like that so i mean i definitely it's good to know that uh i mean i don't know i don't know who he's cheering for you know i don't know who who he's you know he could be cheering for young or you know or maybe for even the other fighters you, you have no idea but it's definitely good to see that you know someone as influential as him you know wants to watch the fights you know and is involved in even just watching him train you know so definitely i feel like man I want to go and put on a show, you know, it's not, of course, they still have the transmission, you know, that everyone's watching on TV, but, you know, since, since I'm going to be hearing my coaches very clear, I think it's going to be like almost crickets inside of there. I don't know if he's going to have, you know, friends there. I don't know if it's just him. I don't know that, that much, but the fact that it's going to be basically a part, like a private event for him, you know, and that, that's, um, that not pressure, but I'm excited for that. Like, okay, let me, he wants the show. Let's do the show then, you know. Let's make it worthwhile. 
you've got the privacy settings jacked up, like on Facebook. You don't want like strangers creeping on your account. You got, you jack up the privacy level. That's what he's doing uh, at, the, at the apex. Yes, yes, one hundred percent. Now you grew up on the mats. You, of course, love jujitsu. You, your father was a world champion. You're a world champion. In terms of striking, Jason Perillo, your coach, has such a, a love for striking. Uh, you, you can see it when he's training people and when he's watching, uh, you know, the X's and O's of the striking game. Have you fallen in love with the striking game as a result of having a coach that's so passionate about it like Jason? Oh, 100%. Yeah, he made me... I mean, I train my striking every day, you know, like Monday through Friday. So he's like, he's my head coach. I live in California. He lives in California. You know, my dad lives in Arizona. So, um, yeah, it's like I'm working my striking every single day like out of camp off season you know like when i don't have a fight i'm still training my striking and yeah i mean it's just and he knows he knows how to talk to all his fighters you know like when you think about chris cyborg cheeto cheese bj penn bisping cheeto me it's like we all basically we all have to work similar things but we all take information differently you know so with cheeto he might say something different and then with me he says it a different way and then one of us will pick it up, pick up on it first. And then we realize what they were trying to say. And then, you know, we start understanding. So he knows how to speak different languages with each of his fighters, you know, and to all get to the same, the same concept of what, she, what he teaches and what he believes and what he sees, you know. And once you, once you see what he sees, you understand why he loves it so much, you know, why he's so passionate about it because it really is. It just starts to flow. It's like a dance. You, you make them fight your own rhythm you know and it's really really cool and it, hel it helps you set up for whatever style you are you know so i'm a grappler um so my boxing how he made me see my boxing it it only helps me be a better grappler on with the highest level of fighters you know what i mean and it's gonna be different his, his striking helps cheeto make it better for his style which is his crazy kicks you know what i mean um you know just his style uh chris cyborg bisping so it's it's really really cool to be Finally, underneath, you know, the wing of someone so experienced and under the guidance, you know, you really see how the athlete, when they have a good coach um, and they have the right guidance, how they just blossom. Well, if Mark Zuckerberg does get a chance to meet you before the event, you have your, your smile and your infectious energy will certainly rub <laughs> off on him and he will be cheering for you, uh, as we all will be this weekend. Uh, best of luck against Yan Xiaonan in the main event this Saturday. Thank you so much. It was good to talk to you. Pleased to be joined by Brendan Allen. And let me check my lineup here. You're on the prelims. That doesn't make any sense against Christoph Jotko. But does that bother you? You know, everybody always says this shouldn't be on the prelims. But do the fighters actually care? Would you rather just leave the arena early anyways? That's how I feel. I just like to talk a little crap about it and give everyone a hard time. But I'm ready to go eat after. You get the same pay regardless of where you fight on the card on a fight night. Yep. Anywhere. If you're not a main event, to me it doesn't matter. The only way you're getting paid different is for a main event. So... Uh, I'm good with whatever. And you'll be fighting in front of some sort of crowd, but nobody really knows what it is. It's close to the public. It's close to the media. I spoke earlier to Mackenzie Dern, who said she heard that Mark Zuckerberg has rented out the Apex for, I guess, a private event featuring the likes of yourself. Have you heard anything along those lines? That's what I heard as well. Does that interest you at all? I mean, what, what's, what's your thought going into a fight where you're kind of almost like, uh, you know, the gladiators fighting for the rich oligarch? Although he's not an oligarch, he's just a rich tech uh, guy. But I mean, in, in today's world, I guess that's the equivalent. I'd rather be fighting in front of thousands and thousands of people, to be honest. But you know, it is what it is. If it's going to be, I guess, back to like COVID times again, you know, the start of COVID when they come to the apex, I feel like that's what it's going to be. And 
It is what it is, man. I'm, I'm just focused on the task at hand. I know the uh, UFC is doing a card in Orlando. You're based in Florida now, but uh, that's, I guess, a little bit too soon for you to be returning to the Octagon, regardless of what happens uh, on Saturday? I mean, if I win, I'm not coming back till end of January or February of next year, but I don't know. I'm always that guy. If I lose, I'll, I'll figure it out and try to get on that card just because it is so close to camp. I heard in an interview that you did that you want to fight in Brazil because you just like to travel there in, uh, in January. Is that what you're hoping would be next for you? That's, that's what kind of my plan right now. Uh, if everything goes good Saturday, yeah, I'd like to go to Rio and uh, get a good matchup there. How good of a training partner has Gerald Mearshart been for you in this situation? He's the last guy to fight Jotko. Uh, he's you know, recently moved over to Team Killcliffe with the likes of yourself. And I think you guys had some uh, experience at Rufus together as well. So what's it like having him as a training partner in this situation? I didn't have him for the camp. Uh, he went back home, you know, to be with his family. But we stayed in contact, and obviously he told me, you know, insights from the fight with him and how it actually feels being in, you know, the octagon with him. So I got insight from him, and yeah, man, it's it's good. We have a lot of – we have a very tight relationship from Rufus Sport. We got very close there because we were obviously training together every day, and um, – we just had, you know, a good friendship. So that, uh, that hasn't wavered. And, yeah, he's always helping me. And anything I need, I know I can call him. And same for him. He can always call me if he needs anything. It's like middleweight central over there at Team Killcliffe. There's so many middleweights for you to get reps with. I know Gregory Rodriguez just fought. I'm sure you guys got a lot of training in. Marc-Andre Berrio just fought. So uh, what's it like having such a stacked room in terms of middleweight bodies? It's great, man. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm super happy for Greg. And obviously he just announced he's got the other fight with Brad. That's Super happy for him. You know, I, I can't. I love seeing you know my friend succeed, and the training room's great. You know, we got Phil Hall's coming up after me. I'm excited for him. Really excited for him. Um, I trained a lot with him this camp, and Delano Taylor, who's going to be fighting for PFL Finals. And um, yeah, man, we have a great room. It couldn't be any better. It's you if you can't find someone that's close to the style of your guy, then there's a problem. Well, fighting, uh, training about 25 minutes down the road is your opponent, Christoph Jotko, uh, over, I believe he's over at ATT. I would describe both of you guys as kind of pesky opponents for different reasons. You, because you're always in your opponent's face and you're always looking to finish fights, and him because of the opposite. It's hard to catch him. I mean, you're, you're going to be running after him, and he's very, very elusive. Uh, it's not a knock on him. I just think that that's what fits his fighting style and has given him some success in the UFC. So how do you think those two styles are going to clash when, when you meet each other on Saturday? I don't know. I guess you're going to see, but I mean, for me, it's like, I'm not going to keep chasing him and chasing him and chasing him and chasing him and chasing him. Uh, I'm going to just do me. Uh, if I have to stand in the middle of the cage and just put my hands down and just be like, okay, well, he doesn't want to fight. Um, then that's what we'll do because at the end of the day, it's a fight and he has to fight. I'm there to fight. I'm there to scrap every time, no matter win, lose, no matter what happens, I'm always there to fight. And, um, I don't know if he can say the same, but no matter what, none of the, the past matters. It's just going to be about Saturday, and um, we'll see who the better man is that night. I ran into you in July. I believe it was at the World MMA Awards. Um, oh, sorry, no, at the uh, UFC Hall of Fame, uh, yep. red carpet, rather. And uh, we spoke a little bit, and I said I was glad that you got the decision over Jacob Malkoon because it was true to what the scoring criteria says should happen in a fight like that. How familiar are you with, with the scoring criteria and how – you were, I guess, able to get a win on the judges' scorecard looking back at that fight. I mean, I know the judging criteria kind of well. I judge a little bit when I'm at home. Um, so based on that, 
I guess you could say just like the main like scope of things would say that it should be fight ending intentions. Everything kind of falls, kind of falls underneath that banner. And um, he didn't have any fight ending intentions whatsoever. Uh, he just hugged me. When the ref told him he needed to move, he would try to punch me or elbow me, and I'd literally catch it and elbow him right back on the ground. And, um, yeah, he, he literally had no fight-ending intentions whatsoever. I believe after the fight it said he had, like, five and a half minutes of control time, and I had, like, three and a half, or he had six, and I had three and a half. I think it was, like, a minute and 30 seconds is what he had more than me, according to the UFC statistics after the fight. And I more than doubled his punch count. So, um I don't see how you could even assume it would be the other way. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, the top control doesn't really matter. It's what you do with it. And you're always hunting, even from bottom. You were, you were going for things while he was, um, you know, trying to not, not even really advance positions. So I, I think that that is you know, why you got the scorecards and why people should understand a little bit more about the scoring criteria. Now, you said you've done some judging uh, back in Louisiana? Yeah, I judge a little bit when I'm when I'm back at home in Louisiana, you know, local shows and Emmys, maybe a pro or two here and there. But I like to do it. I like to just stay in touch with the local scene of where I'm at. And um, yeah, like I said, I, I kind of under the rule, understand the rules. I, I do it a little bit. I fight a little bit. Been around a long time. I know they change. They're ever adapting. So um, yeah, it's just it's also different, man. It's different when you have a a judge that's thinks he knows about fighting but really doesn't and he's never been in there he's never felt what it's like he doesn't understand the positions the sequences he doesn't understand any of that it's it's a whole lot different i think it's i think it's only right to be honest that um there should be ex-fighters or fighters that are, are judges obviously you can't be partial to one guy and that's hard for many people and um i think that would be the hardest part for current like our active fighters but and even some older fighters but yeah, I think that's where it should go. I mean, that's just my personal opinion. It don't mean too much, but... Well, it, it is going to mean something because you're starting a promotion. Speaking of amateur and pro fights in uh, your hometown and your home state, you're looking to start your own promotion. I guess All In Combat, I believe it's called, along those lines. Tell me a little bit about that and why you decided to get into this game. Yeah, so I've been in the game for a while, like around it or in it for a while. I just sat back and just kind of watched and listened and took notes for a long time. And um, I finally decided it's time for me to do something to give back to the fighters from where I'm from, as well as the fans, man. Where I'm from, we don't, we don't. Obviously, we haven't had a UFC there in a long time. We don't have a lot of big cards come there, um, so we have local shows, and some of the local shows are just like some of them only care about the money. They don't give a crap about the fighters. They don't give a crap about anything else. If they can cut corners in any way to make more money, that's what they're going to do. Other promotions do care about the fighters, but they're trying to protect their guys and they have kind of uneven matchups a lot. And I understand some of them, to be honest, but um, I want people from around where I'm from or from where I'm from to, to get that kind of big league type of feel and I've never been a, a mediocre kind of guy in anything that I do, so I always want to do do as best as I can do and get as you know big as I can get it at some point. I know that's a long goal, but um, for now it's just about giving these younger fighters and these fans from where I'm from um, a bigger avenue and a bigger big time feel. You know what I'm saying? I want them to to feel. You know when they when they come there and they they fight, they feel like they're getting treated well, they're taken care of. And then it's a great atmosphere for them to be in. 
And while you are from the state of Louisiana, uh, I should also mention that you do have a tinge of Canadian to you. You told me before this interview your grandparents are from Edmonton. So have you ever been to Canada at all? Not, not just Edmonton, but have you been to the Great White North? I've never been. My, my grandma's from... I get them mixed up, but I think my grandma's from Alberta and my grandfather's from Edmonton. My grandfather gave up his citizenship to go in the military here, but my grandma still has her citizenship. I don't know why. I ask her all the time why she does, and she's like, oh, because it's easier to travel, but she hasn't been back in a while. You know, they're getting older, and, you know, they have health, you know, things going on with them, so she hasn't been back in a long time, and no, I haven't went as well. Well, Canadians will kick my butt if I don't correct you on this, but Edmonton is in Alberta. Oh, well, <laughs> they got me there. There you go. So, I mean, it, 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 so they're both from Alberta. Like, okay. <laughs> He's probably from okay, outside yeah, of Edmonton. Well, yeah. That makes sense then. You <laughs> got me. It certainly does. Well, you've got a couple couches to sleep on if you ever want to go to Canada. Aaron Jeffrey trains with you, a former opponent, uh, and, of course, Marc-Andre Berrios. So if you ever want to uh, come and visit, I'm sure you'd be more than welcome to stay with either of them. Yeah, man, they're great guys. Man, I've enjoyed. We trained me and AJ trained a good bit for this fight too. Um, helped him for his fight, and he's helped me for this one. He's a great guy, man. And I know we fought in the past, but he's such a good guy. I'm so happy to see his success as well. Hey, he's moving on up. He could be contending for the Bell, uh, Bellator middleweight title by the end of next year at the the rate that he's at at his trajectory. I agree, man. He's he's good, man. He's talented. He just got some tough runs and or tough outings in uh, the contender, and but he's. He's still learning. He's, I feel like he's still so green. Like there's little things that we, we try to help or try to help him with, and you know people are helping him with, and he's getting so much better in those areas. So I'm excited to see you know where he goes because I know he's got a big you know he can reach any goal he wants. Well, we're excited to see you compete this weekend yourself, Christoph Jotko. Always appreciate your time. Look forward to speaking to you again soon. Awesome, man. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. The Body Snatcher is back in action this weekend, taking on Joaquin Silva. Now, Joaquin has not had a win in almost four years. He's going to be very hungry coming into this one. Tell me a little bit, uh, a little bit about him as an opponent. I know you uh, had a, a bit of a change of opponent recently with him. You know, I like this opponent change. Uh, he's from Evolucao Tai in Brazil, which is uh, an old opponent of mine, Francisco Trinaldo. They, uh, that's the gym that he's originally from. I know I think they're at ATT now. But uh, it'll be good to get that win back versus a Brazilian from that gym. Uh, and Trinaldo's on the same card as me. I like him. So uh, uh, I kind of know that style from the gym uh, that they train at. You know, I fought there before, and I've, I've seen, you know, Joaquim Silva fight. And uh, I, everybody that's ever fought me has always changed their style when they fought me. So I can expect a different Silva. And like you said, a hungry guy. If he comes out hungry and wants to get it done, I'm, I'm ready for that. I'm ready for wherever this is going. Like, this is... Probably mentally and physically the best I've ever felt and looked pre-fight in a very, very long time. And I'm, I'm so excited like, to get in there and fight because I just I, – normally it's like nervous and I don't want to do this. And it's like, well, this opponent and how I'm feeling, I, I can't wait for Saturday. What do you attribute that to if this is the best you've ever felt um, you know, in your late 30s? To feel that way is probably uh, pretty remarkable. Right? It's It's – I finally made some connections uh, mentally that like there's bridged some gaps. You know, I've always had a big issue with the the mental aspect of my game. And also, you know, I feel comfortable uh, with all aspects and all areas of my game now. Like I I did some cross training in other gyms with some very high level guys uh, in different sports, like high level wrestlers, like Olympic level wrestlers. 
uh, high level black belts. You know, I've always had good high level striking. You know, I've went and sparred a bunch of different people and it's like, holy shit, I am still good. I can still do this. You know, I read, believe it or not, I've read two books by Tim Grover that really clicked in my head, Relentless and Winning. Uh, I can thank Marc-Andre Berriot for that because he put that on Instagram. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to grab these books. And uh, I read those and holy, like, geez, like, it, like, it didn't like, like the book spoke to me in ways like when I was reading it, I wasn't just reading it. I could actually hear people that I know in my team, like speaking these words to me and it just resonated. And I, you know, training went well, no injuries, no problems. My weight's great. Uh, I'm, you know, faster and stronger than ever. Like it's just, everything's just come together for this and it's, it's my time. I can't wait for it. I got to go out and get it. And I, that's Saturday. I'm going to go out and get it. What about the book inspired you? I, I don't know much about the author, uh, but please let me know what, what about the book really helped your mentality going into this. So their one book is Relentless. It really talks about a fighter's dark side and how there's like two different people living inside you. There's the, the you and then there's the dark side of you, the, shit that, the, the side that gets shit done. And it, the, the book really emphasizes on that, uh, like enhancing your dark side and, and using it because – you look at guys like Michael Jordan or like they have a dark side all the time. It's always on. But then they have it, – it's just – it talks about the fight like – or not a fighter but an athlete's uh, dark side or athletic side, like the side of them that, you know, performs and does everything else. As for the other book, Winning, it, uh, it speaks on the formulas like habits and what you need to do to win and how, how to go out there and get it, not just expect it through it to come to you and all this training. It, it's – I, you have to read the books. I, honestly, it's, it's they're really good books, and I smashed through them. And I've actually I'm on a, reading them both for a second time. I think I read recently there's only 14 Canadians now still in the UFC. Now Canada was something of a hotbed for the UFC for a long time. You're still training in Canada. What would you attribute that to? I know the regional scene has dried up a little bit, but it's starting to come back slowly but surely. Are you seeing a lot of young talent come into the gym these days? Uh, in London, not really. We got Malcolm Gordon. That's uh, he comes by and you know makes a few visits. He's still in the UFC. He's fighting October twenty second. Um, there is about to be some some guys. <laughs> like I, I training at Niagara Top Team. There's a really there's a lot of high level guys out there. Uh, I don't know really much about Montreal. I haven't or like the Quebec area, TriStar. I haven't heard much of anything over there. But uh, yeah, you're right. The the MMA scene has dried up, and I haven't. There's not really anybody that stands out. Um, that that's ready to make that massive jump that's actually taking serious fights like we got guys that have uh really good records that think they're ready but it's like yeah you may be you know 11 and 1 or uh you know 13 and 2 or whatever it is but it's like you need to fight somebody tough in order to get to the ufc like in my mind this is just my opinion like you can't just go around fighting bums and and stockpiling up your record to get to the ufc so yeah I, uh, to be honest i couldn't really answer you as to who who is next in any weight class to get to the, uh, the UFC right now? That was kind of always your calling card, as you didn't take easy fights, even on the regional scene. I mean, your last win on the regional scene, Troy Lampson, very solid fighter on the regional scene. Uh, yeah. Michael Dufort, who's, I think, signed with the PFL now. So, you're, you know, yeah. you're fighting the best of the best that's available to you. And I think that, you know, the example I always give is uh, Tony Gravely. He's, he was on Contender Series. And you see all these guys on Contender Series come in. They haven't fought a lot of good competition. Now, whether or not they're unable to get fights because people know how good they are, I don't know. But Gravely was just fighting the best of the best guys. And I think it took him longer to get to the UFC. But when he finally got there, I think he was really well-equipped to handle the competition. Right? And he's doing well. So it's, that's, you know, I feel the same way. It's like, I, it's weird. I can't find an easy fight. 
I've, you know, be able to, like I see all these people finding easy fights. I'm like, man, I like, what is it going to take to get me to get this easy fight so I can get a highlight real knockout? I've never been, you know, offered an easy fight or given the opportunity to take an easy fight. It's always just been tough guys. And it's just like, you know what, let's, let's do that. You know, let's, well, I fight the tough guys because I've never said no to a fight. And it's, you know, if you can handle it outside the UFC, you should be able to handle it in the UFC. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it, it, it helps better prepare you for this because the UFC, I've told this to so many guys, it's a completely different animal. I don't care if you can beat the crap out of this guy in the gym nine times out of ten. When you get to the UFC and that octagon door closes, things change, right? The fight week, everything's just different. It's just a, a whole different set of nerves. And, you know, it's something that I'm comfortable with now and I know how to handle um, the apex situation last time, everything was new and different to me, but it's like, okay, second time around, I got this. I know how to handle this. Everything's going a lot better. Now, from what I understand, the, uh, apex is closed to the public and to the media because Mark Zuckerberg has apparently rented it out. Have you, you heard the same thing? Two other fighters I've spoken to today said that that's the reason why. I haven't heard that. I, I asked the shadow box in the cage today and they said, nope, can't do that. You got to go to the PI. I see. That's about it. I haven't heard anything about Zuckerberg, but good for him. You know, Mr. 100 billion or however much he's worth. Maybe I'll see him. You can ask for a fight night bonus. I mean, discretionary bonus from Mark Zuckerberg probably couldn't hurt. Right. How awesome would that be? Yo, Zuck, hook it up. Like, what's 100 grand to you? That's literally 0.000001% of your wealth. Like, you know, and that'd be absolutely life changing for me. You know, I got a wedding to pay for. I got a house to buy. <laughs> I got so much shit coming up. Come on, Zuck, hook it up. Well, you can save that for the post-fight speech. I mean, maybe he'll maybe he'll hook it up. Maybe uh, maybe you'll you'll pit, touch a nerve with him. That would be, you know, fingers <laughs> crossed. Here we go. <laughs> when you talk about not taking tough, uh, not taking easy fights, rather, you look at your first UFC run. Everybody talks about this all the time. Three straight losses, but split decisions to like Michelle Prezeros, who ended up being ranked. Francisco Trinaldo, who you mentioned, is still on the card, age forty-four. He's still kicking around, and of course Kevin Lee, who fought for an interim <laughs> championship. Uh, was that just the, you know bad luck in terms of who you were against and, of course, how the judges saw those fights? Because, obviously, three close fights against really, really high-level guys. So it's, I look at that and it goes, is it bad luck? No. Like, like I said, I don't turn fights down. I know guys that say no. Kevin Lee openly said, cherry pick. When you get to the UFC, cherry pick. But I was like, I'm not here to cherry pick because how am I supposed to be the best in the world if I'm not fighting the best guys, right? So I never said no. When... I couldn't say no to Prezeris. That was a short notice fight that I had to take. But then my manager calls me. He goes, hey, uh, Francisco Trinaldo, February, do you want that? And I'm like, sure. Like, and then, again, Kevin Lee in July, you want that? Yeah, sure. Like, I've, I've never once have somebody said, you know, hey, we have these nine guys. Pick the best guy or pick the guy that you want to fight the most of the top three guys and whatever. Like, I've never seen that before. I know other people have been offered that opportunities like that. Like, hey, we have all of these guys ready for these dates, pick which one you want to fight and get back to me. I'm, I was, I've never been privy to that type of privilege for the UFC, but yeah, I like this better. I like fighting tough guys because, you know, win or lose, it still shows that I'm like, I lost split decisions to guys like that. And it just lets me know that I'm still, I can, you know, man can still hang. The man can still win. I'm ready to go. You're a manager's dream. You just say yes to everything. That's Dan, Danny Rubin. You must be lucky. For you're a fight. Like when you're, you're a fighter, you get paid to fight. Like, yeah, I should be cherry picking. Cause obviously I, I'm, I want more money that everybody wants more money, but it's like, I'm got 33, 34 pro fights and I'm still making, you know, I still have to fight a lot and win just to get my bills covered and everything else. Like, uh, so 
and we'll see how it goes from here, but um, <laughs> manager's dream, I guess. And the final question for you, uh, you know, everybody in the Canadian scene tend to know one another. I'm not sure if you had ever met Elias Theodoru or knew him. Obviously, oh, yeah, I knew passed him away. Well. Yeah, so I, if yeah. you could give me some of your thoughts on him, maybe a, a fun story about him, because anybody who's met Elias probably has a fun story. He was just such a, a quirky and outgoing guy. So he, he, I, I remember Elias when he was like 2-0 and or like 1-0. and Like he fought on undercards that I was like co-main eventing or main eventing back in the day. Like we came up on the same the same regional scene. You know, we trained together at Parabellum for years. Uh, always a great guy to train with. Like everybody, you, you meet the guy and you watch him fight and you're like, man, I hate that guy. I hate his style, everything about him. I just want to punch him in the face. And then all of a sudden you get to talk to him afterwards and you're like, man, that guy is awesome. He's such a sweet guy. He's such like, he's such an awesome dude. He's always there to help. Like he may have had an annoying fight style for some people or like very hard to train with, but like he was such a good dude and he always helped everybody. And it's like, if you had a problem, he'd be there to help. I remember when he won the ultimate fighter, we were at a show in Burlington and it was just like a local BTC fight card and cameras and TV crews were all over him. And he like, people were swarming to take pictures because he's a he's a good looking guy, you know, long flowing hair, you know, just won the ultimate fighter, very popular, the high mom thing. And he literally stopped a live interview on TV to go, hold on a second, I got to say hi to my boy. And then the, the camera's like, what? We're, this is live. What are you doing? He goes, yeah, yeah, don't worry. We'll get back. And he, he stopped and he shook my hand. He's like, this is Jesse Ronson right here, UFC fighter. You know, we came up together. You know, he's a veteran. He's a good friend of mine. Like always been that type of guy that gave everybody their time, their, you know, their time of day and everything else. And it's, he's just so selfless and, you know, he just, he made time for everybody. He was so nice. It's just, it sucks that he's gone. I didn't get to see him very much over the last three years. And it's very unfortunate the way things happened. And uh, I know I'm going to miss him. I'm going to miss seeing him around in training rooms. I'm going to miss, you know, seeing pictures and talking about him and, and all that stuff. Yeah. It's still weird to me that he's just not here anymore. Right? It's, I mean, it's a, it's a crazy it's, thing. Yeah. And yeah, you're absolutely right. It's like, uh, it's not something you'd expect. It's still, it's surreal. It's like, uh, <laughs> I can't even say, I, I don't know how to say it without like, it's just, yo, how's Elias doing? Or where's Elias? He's not around anymore, man. It's, it just doesn't, it doesn't feel right. It doesn't, it hasn't set in yet that he's just not going to be there anymore. Yeah, and he was always so uh, active on social media. And, you know, I always say when, when you were in a room with Elias, it felt like you were the only one on the planet like he was just always giving his sole focus to whatever was in front of him and yeah he's gonna be missed dearly uh thank you for sharing your story i appreciate it and yeah. uh congratulations on your upcoming wedding best of luck on saturday against joaquin silva always appreciate your time thank you sir appreciate it big thanks to all of our guests on the tsn mma show mackenzie dern brendan allen and jesse ronson who all compete on this saturday's ufc fight night card and to you the listener Finally, one last request, of course. Well, I can give you a couple of requests. How's that sound? Is that fair? First request, Tia, uh, the World MMA Awards. Voting ends at the end of the week. If you have a minute, please check us out on the best journalist category. Give us a vote. Would appreciate that. Second, go to wherever you get this podcast. Rate and review the show. Give us a nice review. Goes a long way in terms of the SEO value for the show. Would appreciate that as well. So I just want to say, on behalf of myself and the TSN MMA show, be kind, be well, and be enthusiastic. Thanks for listening to the TSN MMA show.
For all the latest UFC news, visit tsn.ca slash UFC.